Life can be so hard sometimes. Kim Knight describes a time in her life like this. If I could have one positive thing come from Dale's death, it would be the ability to explain in words the utter overwhelming sadness of the loss. One of the primary differences between the death of your spouse and the loss of anyone else is that you have a level of physical intimacy with your spouse that you just don't have with other people. That, combined with the sheer amount of time you spent together, heightens the loss. Until you live it, I'm not sure you can totally wrap your thoughts around the crushing magnitude of losing a spouse. Even as a strong woman with a powerful faith walk, a wonderful family, and a strong support group, I was brought to my knees by Dale's death. I've totally changed how I think about life, marriage, and myself. Whatever happens in my future, I will never be the same. There are things sometimes that we experience in life that are what I call blow-me-away experiences. Things that are unparalleled. But the loss of a spouse is not the only thing that's like that. Thanksgiving weekend of 1989, we were spending time with my parents and my wife's parents in Northeast Ohio. We were headed home on Saturday night, and we were just a couple of miles away from home. In Hartville, Ohio, there was a wedding that night. It was a Mennonite church wedding. There was an older couple, the Burfords, who were headed back home after that wedding ceremony as we were heading home from our Thanksgiving weekend. And as Mr. Burford was traveling east on a state route, headed home, he missed a stop sign. And in my 1985 Pontiac Bonneville, we hit the side of his powder blue Ford Pinto at 45 miles an hour going through that intersection. Later that night, Eileen Burford died. I was overwhelmed. I'd never been in such a serious auto accident and certainly never dreamed, never ever imagined I would be in an accident where I would be the driver and somebody would lose their life because of that accident. I can't help but wonder, why didn't they talk to one more person at that reception so that they weren't at that intersection when I was there? Why didn't I get one more green light instead of red light so I wouldn't be at that intersection at that time? Why? I went to Mrs. Burford's memorial service. It was a packed house. If you know anything about those of the Mennonite faith, 
They're a strong clan. And they supported Mr. Burford and his family spectacularly. That church building where that wedding was was where they chose to have her memorial service. And it was a packed house. I was sitting right in the middle of that particular gathering. And when he came up to the podium to address everybody who was there, he spotted me and he called me out by name and he asked me to stand. I'm in my early 30s, by the way. And here's what he said while I stood. I want to thank you for helping me get my wife to heaven. I was overwhelmed. What was I supposed to do? How was I supposed to respond to a situation like that? I just sat back down. Sometimes it's because of an auto accident. Sometimes because of something in a public setting that you never intended to be experiencing. We can feel so overwhelmed. When our daughter was 10 years old, our youngest daughter, she went to camp. And as we came back to pick her up for camp, the nurse who was there for that week saw some things where she suggested that we ought to take our daughter to the doctor and have her checked out. She had a problem that we were unaware of because she was asymptomatic as people who typically have this condition have really strong headaches and they vomit a lot. She had a condition called hydrocephalus. I'll bet in a group this large there are some of you who may have that affliction or may have known of someone who has that problem. It's like excess fluid in the brain. She had a cerebral aqueduct. I didn't even know we had such a thing. But she had a restriction or a constriction in a cerebral aqueduct that was causing her brain to be pushed up against her skull. And it needed to be dealt with. And the neurology doctor told us that this is one of the most common surgeries that they do. Not going to be a problem. They drill a head, a hole in your head, and then they put a valve in there. And then they run a tube from that valve down into your stomach. And then that regulates your cranial pressure. 30 days after that surgery, we took her for a post-op visit. We thought everything was fine. But we find out that things are now worse than they were before. Because now she has developed, but yet asymptomatic as people typically are not that way. She has bilateral subdural hematomas. She's bleeding in both sides of her brain. Because when that pressure was released up there and her brain relaxed a little bit and came off of that skull, she started bleeding because there were some vessels up there that began to feel differently and just kind of explode. So now her brain is being pushed down after having been pushed up for Lord only knows how long. So we're in trouble now. She's in big trouble. So we take her to the University Hospitals of Cleveland, a renowned children's hospital is there called Rainbow Baby and Children's Hospital. At that hospital, there was the only pediatric neurosurgery unit. Pediatric neurosurgery is a specialty within a specialty. 
There was one pediatric neurosurgeon between Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Detroit, Michigan, a densely populated part of our country. There was only one. His name was Dr. Mapstone. And we were told to take our daughter to Dr. Mapstone. During the time that she was there, it was like we were living Murphy's Law. It seemed like everything that could go wrong went wrong. One day, Dr. Mapstone came into the PICU, the Pediatric Intensive Care, and he said this, and it's the only thing I remember during that nightmare. The only thing I remember him ever saying to us, he said, neurosurgeons are often the bearers of bad news. It didn't strike me at the time, but years later, it dawned on me. He may have been preparing us for what he thought we might be experiencing, that being the loss of our daughter. She was in a comatose-like state. She wasn't responding to any touch or pricking or any audible stimuli. She was just in a comatose-like state for days on end. During that summer, she had five brain surgeries. Like I said, everything that could go wrong just seemed like it was bound to go wrong. I remember between two of those surgeries, we left her one time in the pre-op room, and me and my wife, we were walking to the family waiting room, and I remember both of us shedding a boatload of tears, and I remember my wife saying, I never want to walk down this hallway again. And within 48 hours, we were doing exactly what she said she never wanted to do again because something else happened. It was a scary time. We were overwhelmed by that experience. One day, my wife, sitting next to my daughter's bedside, bit into a raw carrot. And you know that sound? You know that crunching sound? What's that noise? Those were the first words out of our daughter's mouth when she began to come out of that comatose-like state. I still love saying that. What's that sound? But now there are problems. She's been in such pitiful condition that she's going to have to endure a lot of physical and occupational therapy. She's going to have to learn how to walk again. Imagine what it's like for a parent to see their 10-year-old child walking between parallel bars in a physical therapy unit. She had to learn to feed herself again. It was a grueling experience. But hey, praise the Lord. If you were to see her now, you'd never know she went through that. She is the wife of an elder in the Lord's Church in Villarica, Georgia. She's the mother of three daughters. She homeschools that, those kids, and she's the secretary at the church there, so please pray for her. Secretaries need prayers. But we were overwhelmed in that experience. In our early 50s, my wife started spending too much time in the shower. I'm going to tell you this like a guy would tell you this. I would sit there on the bed at night, and I would read while my wife was in the shower. And it kept coming back to me. That water's running a long time. And so I just, as a guy, dismissed that as what women do when they get older. They spend a lot more time in the shower. 
Little did I know that that was the first symptom of her being a Parkinson's disease-afflicted person. It's called bradykinesia. That's just a fancy word for living in a slow-motion world. That's why it took her so long to take a shower. She had no tremors. But if you do any research about Parkinson's disease, there are a lot of symptoms other than the tremors that would indicate a person has Parkinson's disease, and she had them. During her eight and a half years of deterioration that led to her death on Christmas morning of 2013, she lost the ability to get up out of a chair by herself. She lost the ability to take care of herself, to bathe herself, to go to the bathroom by herself. She lost the ability to walk. She fell out of bed one time, had to be transported to the hospital, had a hip joint replacement surgery. She lost the ability to talk, and she lost the ability to eat. On July 11th of 2013, she was starving to death, literally, and dehydrating. And finally, communicating with her eyes, consented to having a feeding tube that gave her about five more months to live. During that caregiving time, there were times I almost snapped. That's a lot of pressure. You're exhausted all the time. It really has a way of impacting you, of causing your feeler to run real fast and your thinker to not be on the same page as your feeler. And if you know somebody who's caregiving, you pray for them, but you make sure that you back up those prayers with your personal involvement in their life. And don't you dare ask them, what can I do for you? Do some research about what caregivers need. Don't put on them another burden where they've got to decide what you're going to do for them. They already are burdened enough. You do some research about what it's like to be a caregiver. Talk to people who have been caregiving in the past. Talk to other people who know that person and get involved in their life and help them. Because caregiving was the hardest thing in my life I ever did. Boy, did it ever have an effect on me. I point out those things just to suggest that there are a lot of things that we can experience in this life that can cause us to feel overwhelmed. And you know what that's like? I'll give you a couple of synonyms. It's like being submerged in the negative circumstances. It's like being crushed by the heaviness of your burden. That's what it's like. It's like you're drowning. It's like you're being squashed by the heaviness of your burden. And it is such an overwhelming experience. And I don't care how long that you may have been a person of faith. I don't care how much life experience that you've had. We are all susceptible to being overwhelmed by some of the awful things that we can experience in this life. I'll cite you an example of a great man of God. A man after God's own heart. Psalm 31. Psalm 31. In the Bible class, we talked about Paul and Silas were not supermen. They were mere mortal human beings. And they were suffering greatly, even though they didn't deserve it. And here's David in Psalm 31. He may have been a great man of God, but this old boy was fixing to snap. He wasn't on the struggle bus. That struggle bus hit a guardrail, flipped down the hill, and caught fire. 
He is a mess. Verse 9, beginning in Psalm 31. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief. And my years were signed. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among my enemies and especially among my neighbors. I am repulsive to my acquaintances and those who see me outside, they flee from me. I am a forgotten man. Like a dead man. Out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. Man, do I ever appreciate his transparency. If somebody were to come to him, I figure he's not inclined to say, okay, fine. See, that's what sometimes we do whenever we're really overwhelmed and we need a lot of help. We'll say, okay, fine. How about we change that? How about when we're a mess and we're really struggling, how about we be more transparent? I feel like I can say this without fear of successful contradiction. There's more than one person sitting in this room that is really struggling with what's going on in their life right now. Could be their marriage. Could be their kids. Could be their health. Could be their job and the pressures they're experiencing there. Everybody sitting in this room has baggage and you can't see any of it with a human eye. Some of us have been carrying baggage in our life for decades. And some of us have recently acquired some tough things that we can't move on from. But what we can do is move forward with them. We can't move on from them because they're a part of our story. David was a wreck. How in the world did he cope with this? How in the world did he survive this? What should we do when we're overwhelmed? I think it'd be a good thing to follow his example. Number one, David trusted God. Verse 1, reading from the New King James Version, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Other translations say, I take my refuge. Now, a sane person who hears about a tornado warning does not go to the nearest mobile home unit to find refuge. You can't trust that refuge. Refuge sought is refuge where there's safety, where there's strength, where there's protection. Where is that? God, that's where it is. If you drop down later to verse 6, I've hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. And then look later again, he mentions this in verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. You saw it on the screen earlier. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. 
Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 tells us what we ought to do. Trust tells us where that trust ought to be placed. In the Lord and how we should do that with all of our heart. All of our heart. And that verse tells us what that means. We don't lean on our own understanding. We don't. We acknowledge him and we permit him to lead us and guide us through the storms that we experience in this life. I know a lot of times we associate this with Jesus, verse 5. But it's a great example of what trust is all about. Verse 5, into your hand, I commit your spirit, my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. What does it mean to trust? Well, look at the end of verse 3. Here's another example of what trust is all about. He pleads with God. Now, remember his condition. He's really struggling. And he cries out to God and he says, lead me and guide me. Keep some duct tape handy. And when you're tempted to say, I got this, tape your mouth shut. Instead, don't trust yourself. Trust God. God's got this, and I've got God. And I'm going to make it through this storm, and I'm going to get to a better place. I don't know how in the world that's going to happen, and I don't know when in the world I'm going to arrive at that better place, but this is going to be okay because I trust in the Lord. That is the humble spirit of a trusting child of God. Now, I will confess, that is not always easy. I'd love to meet her. I'm a great fan of her. Her name's Lauren Daigle. She sings some powerful faith-based lyrics. She has this song, I'll Spare You the Melody, I'll Read You Some of the Lyrics. When you don't move the mountains... I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters I wish I could walk through, when you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. That must be the spirit that we embrace in life. Embracing that spirit gives us comfort, strength, courage, and wisdom. There is nothing this side of heaven that you will ever experience, no matter how awful that it is, but that you can't survive and learn to cope with and even grow through and glorify God because of when you trust in God. Trust in the Lord. Now, sometimes what happens is when we 
are really overwhelmed, our focus of attention is on what is causing us to feel that way. We focus on the burden, and we try to figure stuff out. Well, it's interesting that though David was in such a pitiful shape, this great man of God, he was in such pitiful shape, and yet he could see good even though he was terribly burdened. Look at verse 19. He remembered the goodness of God. Verse 19, oh, how great is your goodness, which you've laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. Now, did you notice verse 19 and verse 21? How great is your goodness. He doesn't just note that God has goodness. He magnifies that goodness by saying, how great is your goodness. Then in verse 21, he references not just the kindness of God, but he references the marvelous kindness of God. Nahum 1 verse 7 says, the Lord is good and a stronghold in day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. James 1, 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. From the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. He's the giver of good gifts. He's the blesser. We're the receiver, and he is the gift giver. Sometimes when we're so richly blessed, we're so involved in enjoying those blessings that we forget the source, the giver. When you're enjoying the gifts, don't forget the giver. It's the goodness of God that's given you the blessings. Remember that. And when you're troubled and when you're suffering in the depths of your adversity, feeling as if you might snap any day, remember, your life may be bad, but the Lord is good. And he knows those who take refuge, who trust in him. He knows you better than you know yourself. He is very aware of your circumstances, even better than you are. He knows what you need better than anybody else, even you. And he can provide the things that we need better than we can provide for ourselves or anybody else can provide for us. The Lord is good, even when we feel so bad because our circumstances are so awful. I had no idea what it was like to lose a wife. I'd been married to her for 41 years. I met her when I was 15 years old, We had a crazy idea about getting married when we were 19 and barely survived those early years. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to lose a spouse. But when it happened to me, you talk about going to your knees, literally, at your bedside, praying more passionately than I ever have before, struggling to get the words out because I was so emotional at that time. 
But oh, how I've been blessed by the goodness of God when my life has been so awful sometimes at times. And then we need to wait on the Lord. We have a problem with waiting, don't we? God often operates like a crock pot and we live in a microwave world and therefore we have issues with God and we struggle. Well, look at the last couple of verses in this psalm. Oh, love the Lord, all his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Some translations say wait on the Lord. When we wait... That has to do with the future. Hope has to do with the future. Hope is faith about the future. There's a book called Those Who Wait, written by Rosemary McKnight. She and I entered Fried Hardeman College at the time it was called in 1971 together. That's an outstanding book and I highly recommend it. Those Who Wait, Rosemary Whittle McKnight, the author. She mentions in that book that this phrase is used over 20 times in the Bible. Therefore, it must have some significance. And it does. It surely does. When life gets very difficult, sometimes we just want to exist. We might even have suicidal thoughts. And there are a lot more suicidal thoughts than there are confirmed suicides. What we need to do when we are suffering greatly is we need to do exactly what the waiter does at the restaurant. Serve. Keep serving. Keep serving God. Keep trusting God. Keep remembering his goodness. Just keep on serving God. There's a song, I kind of suspicion this church probably knows that song based on the songs we sang this morning. There's this song, teach me, Lord, to do what? To wait. Teach me, Lord, to wait. See, we're not born with it. Boy, I wish we were. We're not born with the ability to wait. We can't go to CVS and get a prescription so that we're good at waiting. Waiting or hoping in the Lord is something that we have to be taught to do. Sometimes we learn through experience. Sometimes we can learn through our reading and study and reflection and application of God's will to our life. But we need to learn to wait on the Lord or hope in Him. There's great power that comes from that. I call it the Hobby Lobby verse in the Bible. I drove by Hobby Lobby here during this weekend. I know you have one here. I call it the Hobby Lobby verse in the Bible. It's the last verse of Isaiah chapter 40. I'm sure you've heard this verse. You probably have seen it in some home interior product kind of stores. But those who wait on the Lord, there's that phrase. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. See the benefit? They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Oh, I wish years ago I would have noted the context. Man, that's a powerful passage by itself. But when you add to it the context, it's really powerful. I'm going to go up to verse 21, and I'm going to read a little bit prior to that last verse in that chapter. I love these rhetorical questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits on the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of earth useless. And then skipping to verse 28. Again, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. That section of scripture is talking about an awesome God that we sang about. An awesome, almighty God who has incredible power and strength, who has unsearchable wisdom. And what do you need when you are drowning in the effects of the life that you are experiencing? What do you need? You need strength and you need wisdom. And there's a God in heaven, Daniel said. There is a God in heaven. And he is what you need. Don't break the cocoon open before it's time. Don't take the eggs out of an incubator before it's time. There are times that we're in God's waiting room. We would love to know when we're exiting out of that waiting room. But that information is not available to us. So we need to stay in God's waiting room because there's benefits to it, just like the egg in the incubator and that critter that's going to come out a butterfly. What do we need in our life? Brother Edwin White wrote an outstanding book called A Sense of Presence, and in that book, He wrote what to me is the most powerful statement I've ever read outside the Bible. I conclude by sharing it with you. When we reduce life to its essentials, only one thing is needful. Boy, as soon as I read those words, I thought, wow, how in the world could anybody end that sentence? When we reduce life to its essentials, only one thing is needful, to have God. The noblest use of life is to use it to be spent in pursuit of a further knowledge of God. To use our lives in this way is to embark on a journey to find the answer to Job's question. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. It's to begin an exciting quest that provides a lifetime of spiritual adventure. Those who pursue divine presence in their lives may or may not have quantity of years, but they will have quality of days. We live for this life only, for its frills and fluff, for the parting pleasures and fleeting joys, then inevitably someday we will become frustrated with a life that hardly seems worth the price that we have paid to live it. Life spent in pursuit of baubles and bubbles ends in bitter disappointment. 
Bubbles tarnish. Bubbles burst. We need the Lord. In great prosperity, we need the Lord. So that we can praise him and use those blessings for the help that we can be to others. And when we're suffering great adversity, he deserves to be praised. And we ought to take that gift that we don't want, that life has given us, that adversity, that tragedy, that burden, and use it for the glory of God and help other people. There is a God in heaven who loves you, and he's provided a church family to help you. And if you are dealing with something in your life, I want to encourage you to share it with others. And maybe even this morning, in the presence of this church family, you feel free to come and admit the fact, I'm a mess and I need help. In Seymour, Tennessee, there was a lady who came forward who was caregiving and she asked for prayers. In that same service, there was a young lady whose parents were going through a divorce and she was struggling with that. She asked for prayers. Others have come because of the burden of sin to be baptized into Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. God is the ultimate help in burden bearing and burden lifting. If you need help, please come while we stand and sing.